everybody. Welcome back to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. This is your host, of course, Pastor Brian. And once again, I know I do this every time, but I would like to say I'm just so thankful and grateful for you guys and for your prayers and for your support that you've given me over these last few weeks. It's just been amazing um, to see you guys reaching out to me and thanking me for this podcast and thanking me for um, going over these scriptures. It means a lot to me. It means so much to you guys. And I hope that I do a good job. And I give the Lord the glory with everything that I do. Because He's the only one worthy of any of it. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be starting a new series. And I would tell you exactly how many parts of that the series is going to have. But I'm not entirely sure just yet about how many uh, videos are going to earn up videos. But recordings are going to be a part of this series. I just know that at least we're going to have this one and a few others. This one is actually just going to kind of introduce the passage and go through um, what it calls the deeds of the flesh, or at least the uh, NASB version calls it the deeds of the flesh, as we work into this idea of fruits of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, is actually where, where we're going to be today. So if you would like to turn there, you can. Hopefully you're already there at this point. Um, now that I've said it, or you can pause it and wait for me to, or not wait for me, allow me to wait for you to get there. So, Galatians chapter 6, or 15, 5, verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So, that word there, when it says walk by the Spirit, is the word peripateo, means to regulate one's life or to conduct oneself in a certain manner. It actually shows up a couple other times in Scripture, at least in this context. It shows up a bunch of times, definitely. But in the same context that it's used here, it shows up in Acts 21.21 and in 2 Corinthians 12.18. Back in Acts, some Jewish believers were um, conveying to Paul that some of them were concerned that he was telling Jesus or not Jesus, but Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses by not walking according to their customs. So patterning their life in accordance with the old Jewish law. They were afraid that Paul was telling them not to do that anymore. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling the Corinthians that he and Titus conducted themselves in the same spirit and walked in it. So that same idea of regulating your life, conducting yourself a certain way, is what's being conveyed here in chapter 5, verse 16. So this common theme, all of these passages speak of ways of regulating one's actions. Paul is telling the Galatians to pattern their life by walking or conducting their every action and thought in the Spirit, thereby denying fleshly desires. One thing I would like to do here is state the obvious. Conducting yourself in accordance with either your flesh or with your spirit will undoubtedly have a negative impact on the other. Let me say that again. Conducting yourself in accordance with your flesh or with your spirit will undoubtedly have a negative impact on the other. You can't have best of both worlds there. You have to choose one. And whichever one you don't choose will definitely suffer because of it. And so we get into the um, verse 17 here where it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So epithumeo is the word that Thayer's lexicon says is there when it says sets its desire against. 
Um, it says just to have desires opposed to or to lust against. The desires of the flesh and the spirit are diametrically opposed to each other, and they're incompatible with each other as well. Any and every philosophy and or theology of mankind that seeks to harmonize the two is fundamentally flawed and is ultimately serving the flesh. You Once again, like I said with verse 16, you cannot have the best of both worlds. You either serve the flesh or you serve the spirit. And whichever one you choose not to serve will suffer for that. So if you choose to follow after the spirit, you're going to see a decrease in your fleshly desires, and or at least going and doing those things that your flesh desires for you to do. And then if you follow after the flesh, you're going to see yourself not producing these things that um, you've probably heard called fruits of the spirit before from Galatians chapter 5. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So quick question that I had here. What was the purpose of the law? It was to guide the Israelites towards righteousness. It was to separate them from everybody else and to show them that they are God's chosen people and for them to be a light to the world around them about how to live righteously and how to follow after God. Heinrich Meyer, in his commentary, says that by following the Spirit, you will fulfill the true purpose of the law and therefore do not need to be subjected to it. Verse 19 gets into some of these deeds of the flesh, or what the NASB calls them. And these things are products of the flesh. They're products of fleshly desires, fleshly wants, fleshly um, temptations. And so these things produced, or these deeds of the flesh anyway, are um, coming from your sinful side there. It says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. So let's take a time out really quick for translation. In the KJV, if you are following along with me with the KJV, it includes the word adultery, or in the Greek, moikaia would be the Greek version of it there. The NASB excludes it, but it keeps the others that are mentioned there. Other translations have the same occurrence. The ESV, the English Standard, the New International Version, also called the NIV, the New Living Bible, and the Christian Standard Bible, they don't include adultery right here. And you might have the question as to why they don't include adultery. Well, forgive me. I'm about to nerd out on you guys a little bit, so hopefully, hopefully you'll stick with me. The Textus Receptus from 1516, one of the foundational texts of the King James Version, it includes that word, moikaya. The Vulgate, which is a Latin translation from the 400s that has influenced almost every Bible translation, including the KJV indirectly, the actual translators that were writing the KJV, and or not writing it, but they were translating the scripture in English, they didn't specifically use the Vulgate, but they used other translations that had used the Vulgate before, such as the Tyndale Bible. And the passage that I'm reading from here is in the New American Standard Version, and they use a text called the Novum Testamentum Gracchae, which is a modern scholar-created Greek translation. Essentially, it's just a summary of all available Greek manuscripts that had a great or had a goal of giving the most accurate Greek word choices based on hundreds of compiled manuscripts. So they looked at every single manuscript that they could find, compared them together, 
and tried to come up with the best um, meet, the best harmony of all of these as best as they could. So if a word occurred more often than it didn't in the manuscripts, they kept it. So essentially in this case, they didn't include it because it didn't show up in a ton of translations or text here. Variations across translations are also given to the reader so that they may see why the scholars chose a certain word. They make sure to convey to your um, to whoever wants to, really. They have a great website with a lot of resources that talk about the Novum Testamentum. And it shows you why they chose certain words um, to put into their Greek translation. Because that's what the Novum Testamentum is in. It's in Koine Greek. It's not in English. It's not in any other language. But it is the basis for a lot of uh, translations of the Bible. It did not include Moikaya because they secretly wanted to make adultery okay, right? No, 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 that's not why. It's because the majority of existing texts did not include it, and it is also implied as part of the next word where it says immorality. The word there is pornaya, or sexual immorality. You might see it also translated that way. Or in the King James Version, you'll see fornication. And all of those together are just like sexual perversions and things. But specifically with fornication itself, it is the act of intercourse between two people that are not married to each other, which adultery would be considered in that too, because you're married to somebody else, but you're um, having intimate relations with somebody you're not supposed to. So adultery would fall under that umbrella as well. And then we get to impurity is the next one that's mentioned in the... Uh, NASB, and that is the word akath arsia. It's, it's living a life given to lust, luxury, and wasteful excess. This isn't just speaking of intimate relationships, but of um, everyday living as well. If you live according to the flesh, your life will be filled with unnecessary things and wastefulness. Just spending your entire life dedicated to following your own desires, with no self-control, with no patience, with no... Um, ability to tell yourself no, you'll end up with a lot of things that you don't really need. And you'll end, you'll end up wasting a lot of your time, a lot of your resources that you could be using for God's kingdom. And you'll use them on things that don't matter, eternally speaking. Next one there is sensuality, and that's aselgia. And Webster's Dictionary, uh, for the word that's in the King James there, is lasciviousness, uh, which is a word that you probably don't hear a lot of. And so I consulted a Webster on that one. And it's just, it means filled with or showing sexual desire. And it connotates an overly sexual like activity and act in language as well. So just this idea of not being able to contain yourself, dirty jokes, dirty mind, dirty everything all the time when it says that about sensuality. And then verse 20, it says, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Idolatry is idolatria, atria, sorry. And it's the worship of false gods and idols. Galatia is a region in modern day Turkey. And that's where Paul is writing this letter to. It's to the churches that are in Galatia because it's a region and not a city that in the time of Paul, they were heavily influenced by Greek polytheism, and Roman, of course, by this point. So they would have been worshipping a lot of these idols. One of the biggest things that you would do as a 
what we would call a pagan worshiper is you would get a little statue of the god or goddesses or however many you wanted of those gods and goddesses and you would keep them in your house and put them in your travel bag and things and when you needed certain things such as you wanted good weather or you wanted good fortune or whatever you wanted you grabbed the idol of the god that controlled that for you and you prayed and offered sacrifices to that specific god you know something about our flesh loves worshiping false gods and idols possibly just like them because we feel like we can get what we want out of them by doing or saying the right things we feel like we can get something in return by being um in accordance with certain ceremonies and certain incantations or certain prayers that we would say and there's something about us that tends that way something about our flesh that tends towards that because we feel like we can control it we feel like we can make things happen that really in all reality we can't but we try to make them happen and one of the ways that people in ancient times and also in modern times try to do that would be to pray to idols the next one is really, really interesting. And once again, I apologize that I'm kind of kind of geeking out with this one, I guess. And with sorcery, the word that's used there is pharmakia, which is what we get our word pharmacy from, fun fact. And it was, in this case, it's magical arts associated with idolatry. A lot of the commentaries that I was reading about this disagree on what this sorcery means. The Cambridge Bible for Scholars and Colleges, they say it's the use of drugs for poisoning or demon worship. Barnes, in his commentary, says anyone attempting to practice the dark arts or any act of practicing the dark arts would be considered sorcery. Poole, in his, says it's the product of compacts with the devil and the invoking of evil spirits for personal gain and malice. The pulpit commentary says drug use during the casting of charms or reciting of incantations. Gill's exposition says it is any real or pretended league and association with the devil and other related actions. So all of these kind of boil down to a few things. And I'll give you my take on just from my reading and from my studying and from my praying over this passage. My take is that the, the sorcery here means the use of drugs as part of worshiping idols because it is coupled with idolatry. Um, most scholars agree it has something to do with witchcraft, as we just read a second ago, using spells, incantations, or sacrifices in unnatural ways for unnatural means. When somebody's trying to practice witchcraft, they're not doing so out of benevolence. They're not doing so out of um, wanting things to be normal. They're trying to intervene unnaturally into the supernatural to make something occur whether that's giving a curse on somebody or a blessing on somebody or what have you. And a lot of times people would use um, drugs in that, in trying to set up these religious experiences, not just for themselves, but for the people that were around them. Dr. Philip Matzak, he's a professor of St. John's College in Oxford, he mentions three specific drugs that were pretty popular. He actually mentioned some more if you want to go read his talk about it. But he mentions three very popular ones. The first one is opium, and it was used in religious ceremonies for gods like Hypnos, who was the god of sleep, and Anatos, who was the god of death. They were twin brothers in ancient mythology. And they would use opium 
in their worship of these gods. Because yes, it did help you sleep. Opium would help you sleep. But if you take too much of it, it will cause you to die. And so they would use those in their worship of these gods. Another one would be the Blue Lotus. It was a psychoactive alkaloid that causes euphoria, tranquility, and increased sexual desire. So it was commonly used in temple prostitution. Just like we were mentioning a second ago with immorality, impurity, sensuality, this lines up perfectly with that, with the use of things like the Blue Lotus, because they were giving themselves over to the lust of their flesh. They were um, not showing any self-control and were continuing to go to these temples and partake in these ceremonies that involved drug use and immoralities and purities and things as well. And another one was cannabis. Um, it was used in parties and also um, intimate parties, I guess you could say too, to aid in laughter, used it as kind of a um, inhibition decreaser, if that's a word or a phrase I can throw together, and as an end-of-life sedative. It was also a common substance burned in prophecies given by oracles. So a lot of times they would be burning um, cannabis leaves in order to see these visions of the future or prophesy about the future using that sorcery stuff. So that's what's being mentioned here, I believe, uh, when it talks about sorcery. Next one there is enmities, and that's ekthra, actively opposed and hostile to someone or something. Deep-seated hatred and dislike or ill will are also included in that. Our flesh likes holding grudges, and it likes acting on those grudges. Um, and if you've never had the desire to hold a grudge, you're lying, because you have. Because it is something that our flesh, for some reason, likes to do. Because we feel like when we have been wronged, that it is our right to want repayment for that. And yet, we end up taking that to a whole other level because yes, wrongs will be repaid eventually, but it's not for us to give vengeance. That's for the Lord. He says vengeance belongs to him. He will be the one that will repay there. Our job is to love people and to not be um, full of enmity towards others because the Spirit will never provoke this. The Spirit will never provoke you to have a grudge against someone. It will never encourage you or he will never encourage you to have a deep-seated dislike or ill will for somebody. That just does not come from the Spirit of God. If they are going to be judged, that was for God and God alone to do. It is our job to reach the world for the gospel. Strife is the next one that's mentioned here, and that is er is. Um, just means contention and wrangling, or angry or bitter disagreement or conflict. You know, we, we like to defend the things that we believe to be true until our final breath. If we are so sold on how true something is, we will fight tooth and nail to prove that it is right and that it is true. And that's not entirely a bad thing, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But that's not what strife is, specifically. It invokes something different than that. It's not just passionate defense of your beliefs, but it is anger-filled destruction of someone else particularly under the guise of a debate. So somebody that is not pursuing to have a conversation with others in order to understand better about the situation, but is only trying to get involved in these discussions and these strifes and things 
to own someone else and to make them look like a fool, or like uh, like a moron, and they're not. Um, your goal in a debate is to try to exchange ideas, prove your point, disprove your opponent's point. But you have to know at the beginning of it, you're not going to turn your opponent to your side. They're so deep-rooted in their beliefs just as you are. But as you're hoping in a debate, the people that are listening will believe your side over theirs. But one thing you don't do, no matter what type of debate this is, whether it's theological or not, is destroy someone, character speaking, and belittle them and berate them into believing the way that you do, or at least trying to. So, jealousy is the next form that's here in verse 20. And that's the word zelos. Um, it's outward showings of envy, jealousy, and rivalry uh, is what that word means. This means things such as like excluding people from stuff or only doing things for competition and bragging rights. So you can say, look what I have done. Look what I have achieved. And then you compare it to other people. And... It's also disliking or treating someone poorly because they have something that you want or that you desire. You look at somebody else and you see that they have something that you want. And because of that, you treat them differently, specifically poorly, because they have something that you want. Moving on a little bit to outbursts of anger, that is the word thumas, means impulsively boiling over, where somebody just cannot contain their anger, cannot contain their rage and their frustration. And they just explode. And it seems like they do that every single time they encounter an inconvenience. That is not something that comes from the Spirit. That is something that comes from the flesh. That is letting your anger guide your actions and your words. Shouting in anger. Belittling someone. Venting outwardly towards someone you were upset at. Those are not products or works or deeds or fruits or whatever you want to call them of the Spirit. Those are the works and deeds of the flesh, the sinful, prideful flesh that we have. Disputes is the next one that's mentioned there, and that's erythia. It's in a way that purposefully seeks to create factions and divisions. Disagreements are going to happen. Don't think for a second that they won't. If you have ever talked to someone outside of maybe your family group, or maybe even in your family group, you have found people that disagree on the interpretation of Scripture. Disagreements will pop up. Disagreements will happen. But don't do it just to cause discord. Don't do it just to sow the seeds of division. Because in so doing, you are encouraging these disputes to continue. And you're also encouraging the next thing with dissensions. And that's dikos tasie. That's more divisions and separations. And... Not only that, it's also more personal than just disagreeing with somebody. Because a disagreement is usually rooted in evidence. You have evidence that proves your point, they have evidence that proves theirs, and you just agree to disagree on that topic. Dissension is something entirely different than that. It's a little more personal. You attack that person's character, you attack their intellect, to try to prove that they are incorrect and more incorrect than anybody else ever could be. And so you usually tend to resort towards personal attacks instead with dissensions. And all of these disputes and dissensions, what do they create? Well, they create factions. Hairesis, 
It's divisions and dissensions coming from differences of opinions and goals. Something I want everyone to remember with this. As we study together, as we learn together, don't forget this right here. Theology, in a Christian sense, is the truth we uncover in Scripture. It's what we teach, it's what we know. How we interpret that Scripture, though, are explained with things like Calvinism, Arminianism, um, Provisionalism, things like that, and that, many, many others. These are how you interpret Scripture, but they are ways of doing so. They're not the way to do it. And I know so often we get caught up in that, where we believe that our way is the best way. And, you know, obviously, if you adhere to one of these, you should believe that it is the best way. But you shouldn't be so ignorant to the possibility that you just might be wrong on something. My advice, and it's something that I've tried to do over the years, and I've not been a Christian for, well, I'll say not a long time compared to some. I've been a Christian for about 16 years at this point. One thing that once I started learning about theology, digging a little deeper into my faith and trying to figure out what it, what it meant exactly to be a follower of Jesus, I've tried to keep to this idea, hold your theological convictions with a tight grip when facing the philosophies of men, but let it be one that is easily loosened by the Spirit through the truth of Scripture. Hang on to it tight, defend it, protect it, promote it, but when the Spirit starts to speak to you through reading the Bible, through studying on passages in Scripture, and you start questioning whether or not your interpretation is correct, listen to the Spirit. Don't sit there and say, Lord, I know that you're leading me towards something different, but I know that my position is true and it is accurate, so I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to follow it. Don't be like that. No matter what theological interpretation you chosen, no matter what way of thinking that you adhere to, allow yourself to be open to changing that by the Holy Spirit. Learn everything you can about it. Be prepared to defend it if you have to. But when the Holy Spirit opens that door and says that you're misrepresenting something or that you don't understand something fully, and he's trying to lead you into a deeper understanding, and when you follow that deeper understanding, it causes you to leave something you've held dear and dear. That's okay. Yes, it's scary, but it's okay. Follow after the leadership of the Spirit, not your theological ideas and opinions. Verse 21 says, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envying is phthanos, or phthanos, and it's just discontent with what is yours with a longing for someone else's things or for their life. That is where you have been given something great. You have been handed something amazing. Because, see, God blesses us so immensely that we don't even deserve any of it. And no matter what he chooses to bless you with, we should be so thankful and so grateful for what we have. But it is looking at that God-given blessing that he has given you and looking at it with discontent and with frustration and maybe even bitterness and anger that that has been what God has given you. And you look to somebody else, you say, I want what they have instead. 
I don't want I don't want this gift that you've given me. I don't want this life that you've given me or this ministry that you've given me. Ungratefulness. You envy someone else. This attitude tells God, what you have given me is unfair and insufficient. What you gave someone else should be mine. This attitude does not come from the Spirit, and it never will. It never will. Drunkenness is the next one that's mentioned, and that is methe. And the actual word there that's used means that it's a plural of the idea of being intoxicated or drunk. So that means that you're given to many forms of intoxicants. Humans are all tempted with addictions to things that corrupt a sober mind. You know, it doesn't have to be alcohol. It doesn't have to be drugs. It doesn't have to be um, looking at things you're not supposed to. It doesn't have to be going places you're not supposed to or spending time dedicated to things that you're not supposed to spend time to. It's different for each person. Because a lot of the things that God has given us in this world are good, good things. Everything that he has given is good. Let me say that. Let me retract it a little bit. Everything that he has given is good. But we can take it and we can corrupt it and make it not good. And when we take it and corrupt it and make it not good, but yet we can't let it go, then we end up becoming drunk on it. We don't have a sober mind about it anymore. And so just like somebody that's trying to come off of alcohol or come away from drugs or anything like that, you have to learn how to tell yourself no, how to back away from something, because sometimes that's the best thing you can do. Carousing is the next thing there, and that's comas. Feasts and drinking parties that stretch into the night and get noisy, usually involving a large amount of alcohol. This is carousing and reveling, and you know, these these things tend to get out of control. They tend to cause a destruction of property. They tend to cause people to get injured, whether it be physically or emotionally. And People end up falling and going into sins that they wouldn't have before, but they just get caught up in these wild moments of just sensuality, really, of just not being able to control yourself. But it's because you just get caught up in the moment. You've put yourself in that position to where you feel like you have no other choice. And not only do you feel like you have no other choice, but you feel like it's something good to do. And it's really not. It's really not. Because the Spirit is never going to lead you to do something that is wild and out of control. It's not going to lead you to do something that's going to cause you to get drunk and intoxicated. The Holy Spirit will never lead you into things like that. And it continues and it says, things like these, so anything that fulfills fleshly desires... So that list is not exhaustive in any shape or form that is given there in verse 21. It's not the only things, but it is some things that the church or churches in Galatia needed to hear because it's things that they were facing every day. Paul is warning them, just as he did before, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why won't they? Because in order to inherit the kingdom of God, one must be born again. Just as Jesus said in John 3 that we've covered before, and if you are born again, these things should no longer be a part of your actions. Are you going to fail? Yes. Are you going to stumble? Yes. Christians still sin, but you should not make a lifestyle out of it. 
you shouldn't make it your point to follow these deeds of the flesh. Because if you are, you are not following the Holy Spirit. And not only are you not following the Holy Spirit, if you claim Jesus, you end up making your own ministry, your own witness, and the witness of every believer look bad to where you're saying, yes, I follow Jesus, but I'm also going to follow all of these other things as well. You can't do that. Because back in verse 16, Paul reminds them, says, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you follow the Holy Spirit of God, the desires of your flesh will not be satisfied. And that's a good thing. Because the desires of our flesh lead to one thing and one thing only. And that is our own destruction. That is our own failure and our own stumbling. And so we'll continue on with this as we get into things that are on the other side, that the Spirit does produce, that the Spirit does give you, as we move on through this series in Galatians 5. Would you pray with me today? God in heaven, as we come before you, we're just so thankful, so grateful, and so blessed for this, this one chance you've given us to study your scripture. And we thank you, God, for the passage that you've given us here in Galatians chapter 5, that we're reminded of the things of the flesh, the things that our sinful desires try to get us to do, try to tempt us to follow. And we're reminded, God, that those things come with a price, that come with a cost. Because if we never follow after Jesus, and we, we say we're following after him, but we're never actually doing so, and yet we're following the desires of the flesh, there's a grave warning built into that that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Lord, we know that you've given us the Holy Spirit. We know that you've allowed us to be able to say no to those desires of the flesh because we've seen something so much greater. And I pray as we continue to go through this study that you would speak to us, lead us, and guide us as we continue in Galatians chapter 5. We love you, and God, we praise you above all else. And it's in Jesus' name we do humbly pray. Amen. Thank you again, and I'll see you next week.